What I understand more and more is how much this idea of God's covenant shapes and forms so much of our interactions and our relationships um, with each other. And it's such an important and fundamental part of what we believe at a church, at this church, that um, we can't talk about it in some ways quite enough. Uh, covenant comes in our sacraments, covenant comes in our interactions with each other, covenant comes in how we interact with our kids, and all of these different things are really important for us to think about. So this morning, um, don't stop me if you've heard this before, please, but um, at the very least, um, understand that one of the reasons why we hit this stuff yet again is just how important it is to our community. Um, we're reading from John 17, 20 through 26. It's actually a part of the Passion Week gospel message when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for uh, the believers. And um, so in some ways it might feel out of place chronologically in where we are in the church here, but very much fits with what it is that we want to talk about this morning. Before we spend time in God's Word, Let's pray for his Spirit's blessing on us as we hear it. Father, again, we give you praise for the power of your word in our hearts and in our lives. We ask now that, Father, as we be still and know that you are God, that in that stillness, that power that you have promised to transform our lives that we can experience that, that we can know that, Lord, you are present here. We can know what the power of that presence means for us as it touches the parts of us that need to be changed according to your plan, that it hits us in the spaces, Father, where we need comfort, we need hope, we need life, we need, we need work, we need repentance even. I pray, Father, that I might be a faithful proclaimer of your word, that you might cause me to disappear and you speak to us. And I pray, Father, that the hearts that hear this message can be moved, Lord, to understand just how much you love us, that you keep your promises over and over and over again to all generations, and then you call us to live out those promises in our lives together. We pray this through the power of the Spirit and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. John chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. Now Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's asked the disciples to keep watch. He's praying. He's already prayed for himself. Then he's prayed for his disciples, the contemporary leaders of the early church. And now he's praying for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them 
and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I study and read God's Word, I'm one of those people who, for whatever reason, I think it's because, frankly, I think I'm a little wacko, that I ask questions that not always people ask of the text. And this morning, as even as this week, as I was getting ready to preach this morning's sermon, I asked the question, how do we even get this text of Scripture? I want you to come with me into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night of Jesus' arrest. It's after the Lord's Supper. He's asked the disciples to come with him, probably just within maybe even 50 yards of where it was that they were staying, because we talked before, Agatshemene, Gethsemane, is an olive press, and that was something that they would stay in during the course of the Passion Week because there were no rooms in the rest of Jerusalem for them to stay. So if they're in already an olive press, and Gethsemane, which is just outside of Jerusalem, is in the olive orchards, it's very possible that where Jesus went to pray with the disciples was literally steps away from where he and the disciples were staying over the course of Passover week. So he steps outside with the disciples after coming back from the Passover meal. And he asks the disciples to watch and wait. And then he separates himself from them in order to pray. And we don't know what that space was, but we know it was enough space at least that the disciples were in and of their own faculties and just sort of decided to fall asleep. So Jesus wasn't close enough that they were hearing him praying or being kept up by what he was doing. He's over here. Who heard what it was that he prayed? How do we have this text? The disciples weren't present to hear what it was that he was praying, and yet we have this text as a verbatim prayer. Anyone else got that question a little bit? How do we get this text? Now, there's a couple things that we can at least think about and wonder about, but we don't have any evidence to support it. We can at least just think about and imagine how God might have given to, in this case, the writer John, 
the text of this particular prayer. And there's not, this is not the only text like that in Scripture. There are other texts that you have to wonder, how do we get these exact words? Was it someone who scribed them down? We get no evidence whatsoever in the text of Jesus actually writing down his own prayer. In fact, I'm fairly certain that that didn't happen. Let's imagine, let's maybe think that in the 40 days between his death and ultimately his ascension, perhaps that was when in his teaching of the disciples, they asked him the question, Jesus, how were you feeling? What were you thinking during that time of your arrest? Tell us a little bit about your experience with that. And Jesus then told them verbatim the prayer that they could then write down. Perhaps that's the case, but we don't have evidence of that. Perhaps it was simply something that when John was sitting down and writing the gospel, and John's gospel is one of the latest gospels, it's one of the the furthest removed from the actual events of Jesus' life, perhaps as John was sitting and writing the gospel down, God, through his presence, gave him the text of Jesus' prayer. That's very possible. Now, the reason that I bring this question up is because it begs the question and it gives us a good teaching point about how we see the text of Scripture. So we need to talk about divine inspiration, if only for a moment. And I'll be honest here, this is a little bit of a tangent from Scripture, but it's a good rabbit hole for us to enter into because it makes us think a little bit. Divine inspiration, or the doctrine of divine inspiration, is that God intended through human writers, and we call it dynamic inspiration when we talk about human writers, that God wanted human writers to write down His story in such a way that there is no error in them. There is... We ask the question, did Jesus pray this prayer verbatim? And the answer has to be, yes, it is. It is a prayer that Jesus prayed verbatim. This happened, this is what Jesus prayed. But if no one was present, and if Jesus did not dictate it or something like that, then God had to protect his message by giving it to a human writer so in such a way that they could write it down exactly as it happened which tells us who God is. God is a God who He has promised us His Word. And because He has promised us His Word and its power for transformation in our lives, we need to understand that when we read the text of Scripture, we can trust it, even if we have questions about it, we can trust that this is in fact the message that God wants to give us. If we look at readings of the Old Testament, these Old Testament readings are 4,000, 5,000 years old, and much of that during times where you did not have um, the ability to write things down. So it was an oral tradition passed down from one generation to the next. They would tell the story. The next generation would then tell the same story, and it would go on and on. But in all of that, God is God, loving His people, fulfilling His promises, being a covenant God who gives them the story truly as it happens. And that includes this prayer that Jesus made. It highlights who God is as a lover of his people. We can trust his message because he loves us so much that it's the real message. 
It's the true message. It's His inspired message. And we can believe it as it is written. And especially because of the culture we live in, this is a pertinent topic. I have a cousin who, unfortunately, I haven't unfriended yet on Facebook, who writes often about organized religion, and this is one of her main arguments against believing in the Christian faith. How can you believe a text 2,000 years old that, in her words, is so incredibly unreliable? Well, we know because we understand divine inspiration, God has guarded this thing. Because he loves us and he promised us he would be his God, our God. And if he's going to be our God, he keeps his promises and guards his testimony, his word. Now, let's get to the text. Well, as so we look at this text, this prayer of Jesus for the believers, we see that it's a text written for the future. This is a prayer for the future. Verse 20 says this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe because of their message. Jesus is in fact praying for Christians who come because of the missionary journeys of Paul and Timothy and others and Philip and all the different people who went out and proclaimed the message. But he's not just praying for them. He's also praying for, ultimately, the missions that would go out to all the way to Asia and Africa and Europe and all over the world. And eventually, even those missions that would go out to South America and Australia and the islands in the Pacific and ultimately to North America as well. All these missions. He's praying for us. Because he knows his people, and he knows the challenges that they will face in the day ahead. And you notice, specifically in the text, what Jesus is highlighting as the challenge that his people will face. And that challenge is unity. And is he right to pray for unity among believers? Well, let's look ahead in the text. If we ahead, look ahead, then we're going to look at the book of Acts. This is the early church. After Jesus is ascended into heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we got all these activities of the, of the uh, early church. And it was great because they always got along perfectly. Unless you read your Bible and you know the true story. And the true story is that they didn't get along. Oh yeah, there was persecution from Jewish leaders. There were problems with people who didn't like it when, when the disciples would come into town and culture would be changed or things that they valued like making money off of somebody who could have visions and, and basically foresee the future when that stopped because someone believed in Jesus and they took away the evil spirit that did it. You know, all these things happened from outside but the problem is too that we have stories where there were issues on the inside. People weren't getting along. If you look at some of those texts, Acts 11, Acts 13, Acts 15, or if you read almost any of Paul's letters, there is constantly the refrain of unity. Because unity is an issue. Because we're human beings and we can't seem to figure out how to get along together. And in this prayer, Jesus is highlighting that as one of the basic needs of the church because when it doesn't happen 
problems ensue, and those problems weaken the testimony of the church to those who do not know the gospel message. When disunity is present, the testimony of the church is weakened. Jesus knows this, and so he's praying that they might be one as he and the Father are one. And the thing is that we know this challenge just as much today. And I'm not just talking about denominations in the church. I mean, the truth is that right down the street, Pathway is meeting. And if we were to say, okay, let's join churches and unite the two churches, Pathway and the river, how would that go? Anyone want to guess? I can tell you it wouldn't go well. What about the church across the street? If you notice their signs, they don't do instrumental music. They only sing a cappella. How would that combining go? Well, Beth would at least have some concerns, I'm sure. What about even Packing House, this church that has graciously offered uh, their building for uh, Ray Leinster's memorial, free of charge, by the way. They've been very gracious, and I'm grateful for that. But Calvary Chapel, which Packing House is a part of, and we are reformed, how would that go? In fact, in Southern California, I'll tell you this, the Reformed Church has had the most issues in getting along with Calvary Chapel because they like tulip, not tulip, because limited atonement in Reformed theology to them is a problem. I'm not just talking about that, though. That's already a sign of disunity among the church. We can't seem to get along on things like that. We're trying to work together. There's some good things that are happening, believe me. However, we still can't get along. I'm talking about other things. I'm talking about things like race. And that's even race within this church. Look around real quick. You see a problem? At least an issue. I won't call it a problem. An issue. We are vast majority a bunch of white folks. Right? Is that true? Let's name it, okay? That's an issue. That's not the kingdom of God, by the way. The kingdom of God is all races and all colors. And, and we're not there. And that, that's something that we got to at least name and say, wait, hold on, we still have work to do in order to be a church of all races and tongues and cultures. But it doesn't stop there. Because we have an issue of the have and the have-nots. There are the socioeconomic differences among the community of faith. Um, in this church, of course, we have um, a significant group of homeless and um, people recently out of addictions, and God be praised, we see ministry of the Coopers as well as Joel and others who are involved in that, and God is good through that because they're involved. And yet, how many of those folks are personal friends with all of the rest of the church? There's just a dichotomy there, and let's name it as such. There's a contrast. Those are people that it's difficult to invite into gatherings, and I have a feeling that it's difficult for them to invite someone like myself into gatherings, and I, and I, I don't even like it. I don't even like how I said that. That's an us and them phrase, and I hate that. Forgive me. It's wrong. 
We have that issue, though. Let's name it. But we're not done. Generations. I want you to look around, and I want you to find out how many college students are in our church. If you are a college student, raise your your hand. I see two hands. Now, in a couple months, we'll get some of our college students back from other schools, and there may be more here. However, this is a college town. We have college kids. We have lots of college kids who are part of the community of the river. And yet, we know, and we've had discussions, and we pray about this constantly, that this is a group that does not feel included as a part of the community of faith because they're in a time of discovery. There's a whole lot of reasons. It's a big discussion. I get it. And yet, the vast majority of those folks are not engaged in the life of the river. It's interesting. Because that's an issue. So, so far we got three and all of them are pretty big. We're doing great. Political divisions? I think I can fairly safely say that the majority of people at the river are fairly conservative, right-side-leaning. I think that's fair. You think that's fair? What happens if we get somebody who comes in and says that adamantly they love voting for Barack Obama because he's a Democrat? How's that going to go? In some circles. In some circles it might be fine. I have regularly those discussions with individuals in the church, but I'll tell you that some of them want to whisper because they're fearful of how that might be received. So political divisions are somewhat of an issue. Let's just name these things. We're doing great. Marriages. There's some marriages that are healthy and growing and vibrant and flourishing, God be praised, but we have others that are divided in lines so strong it seems like there can't be reconciliation. There's division in a home then. There's not unity among the believers who sleep in the same bed. Maybe you can even, you know the issues of your relationship, maybe you can even name those for yourselves. I'm making you guys feel so good this morning. This is great. Educational backgrounds. Those who've gone to college, those who have not, those who didn't graduate from high school. I'm even a guy who names Calvin as the greatest educational institution on earth. And that causes problems for my Dort folks who do, did not graduate from the best institutional on earth. <laughs> See? It's easy, right? We do that. It's simple. And some of those are, and I would even say that that one has a little bit of playfulness and fun to it. Dort is a great place. I have a lot of great friends who've gone there and they've gotten an incredible education and, and there's a lot of other great institutions out there. But, and so in some ways that's, that's, that's playful. But there's others that are certainly not. And it causes an us and them discussion. It causes exactly the thing that Jesus was praying against to happen. We're not on the same page often. It's an issue. And we better be able to name it. Because they weaken the power of the gospel and there's 
consequence for that. Part of the consequence, I already named it to some degree, and that's the fact that the age group of 18 to 25, you could even extend that now, 18 to 30, is a group in the church that is largely unrepresented. I was just at a prayer conference with brothers from the Korean churches, with brothers and sisters from the, from the um, Hispanic churches, from the African-American churches, and what we're finding is that's across the board. That entire generation, 18 to 30, is a unique generation in how they think and how they see the community of faith and how they see an expression of the gospel in their lives. And the problem is, is they're not finding a place in their church that they've been a part of for their entire um, childhood to express that faith. So for us to be people who consider that is not only a good thing, but it's, abs- it's actually one of the most important things because if we lose a generation in the church, how are we going to be doing in 20 years? We're going to have some problems. We're going to have some issues in terms of having workers for a ripe field that's ready for harvest. We're going to have issues when it comes to the next group of leaders who raise up the story of the gospel and put Jesus on display for the world to see. And I'll tell you, if you're 18 to 25 or you're getting ready for that, I want you to hear this from your pastor. I love you. I'm grateful that God has made you who you are. And I know we don't always get it right. In fact, in some ways we get it wrong often. But we care about you. Help us understand how to be an inclusive, unified body, including your generation. Help us. Speak to us. Challenge us. It's uncomfortable, and I'll tell you, there's some folks in here who hear me say that and think, hold on, Pastor Scott, you're going someplace you shouldn't go because that's going to mean new things, crazy things, challenging things, and I'm saying to you, yup, and let's deal with it together. Let's figure it out because no matter where you are, young, old, Black, brown, white, doesn't matter where you are in terms of your you're part of the community of faith. If you confess the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, that means you're part of the family. We claim family here at the river. You're part of the family. Let's learn how to be unified together. But if we do that in and of our own faculties and abilities, we're going to mess it up. That's why we have to go to the text. And the text gives us some clarity about how to learn what unity looks like. The prayers of Christ in John 17 make it clear where the believers will be able to stand united. It starts in verse 21. Verse 21, they will be able to be united through Christ's presence in us. And that presence is the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be a comforter for His people. And those who confess faith in Jesus Christ have that Holy Spirit. There is a unity there. 
all believers, all believers have the Holy Spirit. It's some common ground that we share in common. And we share that in common with Pathway and with Calvary Chapel. And we share that in common with our African American brothers and sisters, with our Latino, Latina brothers and sisters, with our Asian brothers and sisters, with all colors and cultures. And there is that unity that comes from the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't end there. God's glory through Christ. In the Reformed faith, we say solo de la Deo Gloria, which is the whole idea that the glory be to God alone. That our intention as people of, who follow Jesus Christ is that our desire is to all give God glory with all that we do. That's a unity that we share among all believers, that our focus is towards giving God glory. That's unity. Let's stand on it. And the third thing that we see through this prayer is God's love for his people through Christ from verse 23. So God's presence, God's glory, and God's love. All of us know that, which means that regardless of their political views, regardless of their racial background, regardless of their generation, regardless of whatever socioeconomic background, if somebody claims the, the messiahship of Jesus Christ is the only reason that they can have life and hope in this life and he is truly the Son of God, then that's a brother and sister in Jesus Christ and I don't care if you run into that person in North Redlands, in San Bernardino, in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, in the the, uh, whatever, Basilica at St. Peter's. It doesn't matter. You are unified with those people through those things, which means that see that person as a brother and sister. Their distinction but they're a brother and sister. And hear me here. And that includes a lot of Catholics. doesn't include all Catholics, I don't think. Just like it doesn't include all people who claim to be evangelical Christians. Because there's a lot of interesting things that go on. But it means that there are a lot of people who are part of the family of Christ. That when we get right down to it, we don't see them as such. And that impacts the testimony of the gospel, sometimes it comes down to us to change how we view it. Now, this is hard work because maybe we means we need to talk about it sometimes, right? We need to figure things out. But when it happens, incredible things go on for the gospel of Christ. It's amazing stuff when the body of Christ is united together. And this unity coming through God's presence, God's glory, and God's love, it's God's work that he does for his people because they are his in Christ. And if you can't hear the echoes of God's Old Testament conversation with Abraham, hear them because it's covenant. God in this stuff, this unity, through Christ, unity of presence, unity of glory, and unity of love, is echoing back to what he said to Abraham in Genesis 11 and Genesis 17, where he was saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. God is fulfilling his promises and even making it more powerful in Jesus Christ. 
So for us to embrace this as part of God's covenant, and it means that part of God's covenant is to expand the view of the family of God that God made this promise to, that's important work. And the response that God longs for in response to all this for it, is that his people live unified in that covenant. For us to live together in relationship. For us to live together in partnership. For us to live together in our differences, but live together in our differences founded on God's love, God's presence, and God's glory that doesn't deviate us even when we disagree about things from being a part of the family of God that gives the testimony of Jesus Christ to a dark and fallen world around us. What a wonderful picture that gives for us today if we think about it. If we think about what it means to be a multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-cultural, multi-socioeconomic, multi-everything church. Because I'll tell you, fast forward in your Bible to Revelation and the very end of it. The church that stands before the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and falls down on their knees and worships Him doesn't look like us. Oh, it's a part of us. And we're, we're moving in, in a lot of ways towards that. And I'm not sitting here saying, feel bad, let's, let, it's an emergency. I'm saying, let's keep moving towards that picture that we get of all tribes and tongues and colors and backgrounds and traditions worshiping God together because He gives us His love, He gives us His glory, He gives us His presence and that never changes because he promised us that and he will always keep his promises. You know, God makes us different and frankly, there's some of you who are really different. But he does that to make his kingdom beautiful. He does that because, frankly, we need Peter Sternberg because he's different. And he's unique and that's beautiful. And we need Ben Slochter because he's Canadian and he's really different. <laughs> but that difference makes him a trusted brother in Christ that cares about people and brings something to our gospel message that we would miss without him present. And God made Jaden different, beautifully different and unique, even from her twin sister. And that beautiful difference enlarges his kingdom just a bit, a hair's breadth, but it makes things more beautiful. That's the creativeness of God. But he unites us through his Son to live and work by his presence, that's the Holy Spirit, by his glory, living a life of worship in all that we do, and his love, that intimate relationship that we continually have with God through his word, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines, and through growing in love with Jesus Christ. 
And what a testimony it is to the world around us when Jaden and when Ben and when Peter and their unique differences live that out together in love and relationship with one another so that the world can see this is a God who has a big and beautiful and amazing family and they're all loving and serving Him together. What a great image. What a great picture, what great power that brings to the gospel message to a fallen world. What a testimony. Now for us to actively live as a covenant community within these promises, it means that our unity allows us to express our individual unique characteristics. But that happens together in His presence, in His glory, in His love. You have gifts, and some of them are undiscovered. Some of them we know about. Bill Clark, he has been our tech guy for a long time. He's been able to be up there in that room and dealing with all the servers and stuff like that. And frankly, his brain works in a form and a fashion that I have no idea what to do with. But he does. And he has blessed us with that, and unfortunately, we say goodbye to he and Marcia this week. This is their last Sunday. He's gotten a job now, and I think it's in Houston. Is that the last word? All right, Houston. God be praised because they've been praying for work for Bill for a long time. And we're going to miss those gifts. And we're going to miss Marcia's heart. Marcia has visited so many different people. Over... Pam, Sorry. Why did I do that? I'm sorry, Pam. My apologies. Oh, boy. I make your last Sunday memorable. Who can say an amen to how much of a tender heart Pam has? She has visited so many people and cared for so many different people over the years, the list is too long to name in a morning. And Pam and Bill together have blessed us richly. And now that they're in Houston, we'll miss them because we'll miss what they bring. But hopefully, Lord willing, they find a great community in Houston that they can continue to express those gifts. That's what happens when we express those gifts together. I had a great picture of this this past Wednesday. When you see Nick Intout today or in the week ahead, Give him a high five and say, great job. And I'm doing it publicly because what I saw on Wednesday night was absolutely beautiful. It was a great picture of what God's covenant calls us to. On Wednesday night, all these little girls who were in this front row over here and all the little boys who were in this front row over here were down in the river house to start their night. It was Jem's Cadets Night, and they were being led by all of our high school kids. All of our high school kids were down there. They all were on teams. They played games, which totally appeals to a kid like my son, Troy. He was like, that's the best cadet night ever because it was super competitive and they got to play games and be crazy and all that other sort of stuff. And I stood at the back of the river house for a couple minutes and watched it. And I saw a group of high school kids. And you got to remember, you know high school kids. They're super cool. They're cooler than anything in the whole world, and they're standing in a room filled with first through fifth and sixth graders, and they're going to care for these kids for a night. And they played games, and they 
laughed together and it was crazy and they, they had a lot of fun. Like I said, my, my son came home and said that was one of the greatest nights ever. And then I thought that was good because it's neat to see generations connect and different kids with older kids and all of a sudden those old kids see this cool guy who's in high school. They see him as somebody who cares about them. That's great. But then I saw something that made me think just how beautiful a picture of the kingdom of God this is. How beautiful a picture of the covenant is. On Facebook this week, I saw a picture that one of the high school kids put up on their Facebook. And it was a picture of this high school kid with his group, high school senior with a group of boys. And he said, got to spend the night with the coolest kids ever. Go, whatever the names of these boys were. Great night. This is a high school senior who is so cool that no one in their right mind at that age hangs out with little kids because that's immature and goofy and silly. And these kids can look at that picture and say, this person loves me, cares about me, and includes me in the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful image of what it means to live together in unity with each other. I want us to grow in those types of pictures, and I don't want it to be just about a high school kid with young kids. I want it to be about, about senior citizens with kids and with the people in between. I want it to be about people who come from a Hispanic background being with people who come from an African-American background, being with people who come from none of that background but a different one and being all together in unity and love and having the pictures of them with their arms around each other smiling and sharing incredible experiences together. That's why Camp Dunamis this summer for our junior high kids is such a great experience. When God calls us to live together in covenant, it's a covenant of unity where we together as the kingdom of God share his love, share his glory, share his presence. And we do that in our own uniqueness, but we do it in such a way that when we see those sorts of pictures, I think they make God just a little bit more joyful. They make God just a little bit more excited about what his kingdom is doing. They make God a little bit more able to be able to say to someone who's done this, to Bill and to Pam and to Ben and to Jaden and to Peter and to Jared, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for your covenant with us that you do your work to bring us together in love with each other. That through the work of Christ, you have broken down the barriers. There is no longer any slave nor Greek, or slave nor free, nor, neither Jew nor Greek. There is no separation line anymore. You broke down the curtain, and now we have all have access to you. We all have access to your presence. We all have access to your glory. We all have access to your love. And we praise you for that, O oh God. And we ask you to continue to unite us together. May we be one as you and the Father are one, Lord Jesus. And in all of that, 
May you glorify yourself. May you use us to proclaim the name of Jesus. And may the world be able to see the church at work and say, ooh, maybe that's something I need to learn a whole lot more about. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.